Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Boy, I love it when I sit down and then I come back and there's more people. That is fantastic. Welcome, you brave souls. I'm Dennis Carroll. I, I am honored to be one of the pastors here at Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. The, the fact that you're here uh, really blesses me. Uh, but I have a question for you t- this morning. How many of you really think it's good or okay to be in debt? I mean, just anybody here believe it's good to be in debt? Happy that you're in debt? Good. Uh, if, if, if somebody raised their hand, we might have to have a conversation about that, right? In fact, you know, sometimes in life, debt happens, right? If, if, uh, if, a, if a car breaks down or if you need new air conditioning, sometimes debt is, you know, just happens upon you. But the real villain about debt is interest. You should hate interest. You should hate the whole concept of interest. That is somebody with a lot of money borrowing you, lending to you a portion of money and then milking that forever. Their desire, trust me, I have a degree in business finance, their desire is that you not pay them back, right? If it was up to them, they would have you pay the minimum amount forever because they like that. But, but truly, if you could only, if, if, if you were only able, because I know everybody's maybe in different financial situations, if you were in a place where all you could pay is the minimum amount every month, that would lead to frustration and futility. And today, I just want to talk to you, if you've ever been in that sense of just not being able to get out of or get, get out from under a debt. Today, our scripture is really talking about that sense. Today, we'll be reading in the Gospel of John. We're we're not part of the actual series, Walking Dead. We're way past Walking Dead. But we're in chapter John, chapter John, John chapter 12. And and we're going to be reading it in two sections. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 12. And then um, 1 through 11, and then 12 through, through 19. So I just want to let you know. Uh, the, but, I, but before we begin, I want to kind of give a brief uh, recap of where we're at in case you haven't been here around, been around. It's really simple. Um, Jesus claimed he was God many times. But one time he said to his disciples, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish. That's a pretty bold claim. The Jewish leaders tried to stone him. Let's recap. And then the next part is Lazarus, his good friend, has been dead for four days. Jesus tells them to move the stone that that is blocking his tomb. He calls out to Lazarus, and out comes the dead man. That's what it says in the scripture. And then the Jewish leaders plot to kill Jesus. That's pretty much a recap of, of the gospel of John up to this point. Jesus makes claims and, and, and uh, provides miracles and proofs that he is who he says he is. And the Jewish leaders say, he's not good for us. He disrupts us. He turns people away from our, our Jewish faith. So today what I'd like to do is we're going to read John chapter 1. John chapter 12, God, I can't read. John chapter 12, 1 through 11. Here you go. We're going to read it. Uh, let's do this. Six days before Passover. Oh, this is on page 894. If you have one of those black books, just to let you know, black Bibles. Um, six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man who he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume uh, made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it. Wiping his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance. But, excuse my language, Judas Iscariot, 
the disciple who would soon betray him said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and what they believed and believed in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. You've promised that your word would be active and alive and cut between and, and amidst the bone and the marrow. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my abilities. It has nothing to do with my preparation. Your word by itself convicts people of sin. Your word brings life. Your word causes things to grow and to be built. So today we trust that. I thank you, Father, for everyone here, every ear that's able to hear this message. But more importantly, I pray that your spirit would touch lives today. That's what I pray. And we just thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our scripture really does give us a pretty clear marker. This is six days before pa the Passover feast. Right? That's what it says, right? It says it was six days before Passover. This tells us that the life of Jesus on the earth is short. This is ultimately the last week of Jesus being alive. Within a week, he is going to be crucified and buried. And I don't know how... I mean, if I knew what was going to happen to me in the next week, I would not be at a party. I just wouldn't. But Jesus knew what was going to happen. In fact, he told his disciples very clearly. He told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I will be handed over to the, to the chief priests and the elders, and they're going to kill me. He, they, he specifically told that to his disciples. They were dense. For some reason, they didn't get it. Well, I can tell you why. They didn't want to believe it. They just didn't want to believe that the person that they had followed for three and a half years was going to willingly go into Jerusalem and hand himself over to be killed. That did not make sense to him. But what we know and the perspective we get in, in through scriptures is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That every step was purposeful. That there were no accidents. That he handed himself over because he had been prepared for this moment all of his life. I know that that doesn't make sense for us. Uh, maybe we can even look at this like when we raise our children, we sort of prepare them so they can be an adult someday. <laughs> we hope. And, and actually, Jesus was prepared for this point in history. But we see him at this, this party in the town of Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem, right near the Mount of Olives. And, and he's in with his buddies. Lazarus is there. It's Lazarus' house. Martha is serving his sister. She's the hostess. And then we see something that's really interesting. Mary, it says, decides to do something which is very Mary-esque. Right? She, she decides that, uh, or, or we both, well, first of all, we know that both Mary and Martha expressed earlier that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah that he was the one that God had sent to save Israel. In fact, the, Peter confessed it. He believed it too. The problem is, having, say, having the belief that Jesus is the Messiah may not be the same for everybody. It would be like in church. If I asked, do you believe Jesus is Lord? And do you believe Jesus is Lord? You could mean totally different things. How many people know, well, I can say this, how many people believe in God? Everybody believes, well, not everybody. Some people, most people believe there's a God. That doesn't mean we all believe the same thing. 
Even the fact that having faith in Jesus doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. The problem with the, the, the culture at this point is they believed Jesus was going to come and take them away and, and defeat Rome, right? They, they believed in a physical triumphant leader, right? That's why the disciples were arguing who can be on the right or left when you win, right? Who, who can be part of your administration, See, believing that Jesus is the Messiah is perfect. That means that he's sent by God. But believing or understanding what the Messiah was meant to do is really the, the twist here. Is the Messiah designed to meet every one of your needs? Is, this, the, is your Messiah designed to make your life comfortable? Is your Messiah meant to pay all your bills? There's a real challenge here, and, and this is, the, this is the, the problem. Mary and Martha had just witnessed Jesus raising their brother from the dead. Do you think they're excited? Absolutely. Worship is out their lips. Right? They just witnessed the, the most impacting miracle in their life to that point. They had felt the distress of their, son, their, their brother dying and they saw Jesus call him out of the tomb. Do you think that they just thought Jesus was going to win military victories? They saw Jesus work in the power of God. This is what we see Mary worshipped, or Martha worshipped by serving. It says that she was a servant. That was something in her heart that she served Jesus. She served the dinner. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That Service is a form of worship. Please understand, I don't want to lower that, but I want to focus a little bit more on Mary. This woman, Mary, might have been younger. It looks like she's younger and, and very much intuitive, very much sensitive. And it says her position, every time Jesus was around, she focused on his, on his feet. She didn't have a foot fetish, but she, she focused on his feet. She either sat at his feet to listen. Here it, it says that she, she cried over his feet and washed his feet with his, her tears. She anointed his feet. She, there, there was a point where being at the feet so, sort of was her act of worship. And, and it speaks to us about, about being humble, about recognizing who God is. All worship truly is centered around that point, whether you're a server or whatever you do, to, to recognize that God is the preeminent deity. He is who he says he is. Bowing down and kissing the feet of Jesus is the key to worship. Now, it's not the only way to worship, but all worship really comes from that, that heart. There, there's a, there's a uh, scripture I want you to turn to that sort of points it out. It's, it's interesting. It's a very similar story. It's, on, it's in Luke chapter 7, and it's on page 858 if you have one of the Black Bibles. But it's Luke 7, starting at verse 41. It's really an interesting story. It's, it's a, another story. And it, it, some people think it could be Mary, but it's not you know, verified. It could have been her earlier on, or it could have been a different story. It's definitely a different story than we're hearing, but it's very similar. And so in Luke 7, 41 through 50, it says this. Oh, first of all, let me tell you the backstory. Jesus was at, at the house of a Pharisee, a, a, a religious leader of the day. And a, a woman called a sinner, whatever that could mean, a sinner, an obvious sinner, a blatant sinner, effectively, came behind Jesus and went to, went to his feet. And it said that she wept enough to wash his feet she dried his feet with her hair and she poured, um, she kissed his feet and anointed his feet with oil. It's really similar. 
So some people think it's the same woman. If it's not the same woman, I think it's really interesting that two women would have the same response. That humbling yourself and weeping and, and washing and drying and, and anointing would be a normal response to what God's done. For, I, I guess they would just really have to have some experience to draw them to that point, huh? The Pharisee, though, Simon, the Pharisee, was a little ticked off. He, he, he thought that if Jesus was from God, he would know that this woman was a sinner and he should have nothing to do with her. You know, like a good religious person should have nothing to do with people who are not. I'm glad we're not religious that way because you wouldn't hang around me. <laughs> it's true. If only you knew. Luke chapter 7 says this. This is Jesus' response to this Pharisee. He said, Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon, the Pharisee, answered, I suppose the one whom he he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. He turned to the woman and said to, to Simon, Look, this woman kneeling here, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me when I first came in. She has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, as many as they are, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. By forgiving sin, Jesus actually established himself as being God. He wasn't just a man. The point is, that a person that forgives, that is forgiven much will love much. And the person that is forgiven little will love little. Another way to say that is, is your response to God, your personal response to God, reflects how much you think he's forgiven you. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Your response to God reflects how much you think he's forgiven you. Mary's worship was humble, right? She was always at the feet. She learned, she surrendered, she honored God at at the feet. Her worship was extravagant. She gave something. She poured something out on Jesus that was worth a year's wage. I, I think that's amazing. I don't know what it looks like. If you made, I'm just going to throw $50,000 a year. Let's say you made $50,000. You have a household of four kids, six kids. How long do you think it would take to gain an extra $50,000? I mean, I, don't, I raised six, six kids. And my wife and I, blessed the Lord, most of the time we had one income. <laughs> You know what you call people, somebody with six kids? Poor. <laughs> we weren't going to make another $50,000 anytime soon. It wasn't going to take one month. I mean, I'm a decent saver. We're pretty scrimpy. I'm not going to gain another fifty grand anytime soon. What did it take for this family to have a spare Year's wage. I I don't know the full story, and I I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert, but I I submit to you that this family might have been wealthy, right? It also may have been something that the family 
gained specifically for burial. In fact, this, this alabaster jar, this jar, made it, may have been the oil that was designed to care for this one woman. I mean, I, I'm, I'm submitting that to you because I don't know it to be true. But in my heart of hearts, I think that she was responding and saying, you know what, Jesus, I know you're going to take my place in death, so I won't need this. I'm going to anoint you because I know what you're going to do for me. See, Mary had some special understanding because she was so close to Jesus. The disciples didn't realize that Jesus was going to die for their benefit, but Mary did. Jesus said, don't, don't bother her. She knows why I'm here. <laughs> she has that special revelation that, that I'm going to die for her. That's why she's doing this. She knows the value of what I'm giving her. That's the secret to worship. It's, it's interesting that her expression of worship created a sweet aroma in the full room. And, I, and can I tell you, if you're serving God and, and pure before God, people around you will smell you. There will be an aroma. I love the fact that the whole room smelled. And I, I love specifically that her feet, her feet, her hair had to smell too. Everywhere she went, there was an aroma. But the problem is, not everyone smells the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 and 16, it's on page 964. Paul really tells us about our Christian life. He says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrant fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Do you know, if you are a Christ follower, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you walk in his, his presence, that people will smell you. And some people are going to say, man, I like the odor. But there are going to be some people that go, get away from me, you stench. And, and, and here's the proof right here in the scripture Judas thought Mary's worship was a dreadful smell. <laughs> Judas sees Mary giving this offering, this worship, her own, her own stuff, right? She didn't steal the money, right? She did, it was hers to give. I'm having technical difficulties. I, I think this looks, looks funnier than what I'm really going through. It's not that hard. I only have one ear on that side. Judas thought Mary had a dreadful smell. When sometimes when you live out your life in worship, when you live out your life trying to do what God wants you to do, some people are going to misunderstand that. We see that here. Judas didn't worship. I was trying to think what the, ash, the, the opposite of worship is. I mean, I even did a thesaurus, you know. You know what I came up with? The opposite of worship? Hate. You could go abhor. You could, there's a lot of words. But I, I think the simple part is, at this point in his life, Jesus didn't worship, or excuse me, Judas didn't worship Jesus. When he saw somebody worshiping, something in him said, ugh. It turned him. Now we see it described later, but I think there was a real hate that Judas had. The question I have is, well, why didn't he just leave? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he had spent three years with Jesus, so it's sort of a bad, you know, like in business they would call it sunk cost. He'd 
spent some time. And, and I, again, I, I don't know this to be exactly true, but maybe he thought he was a better leader than Jesus. Maybe he thought if Jesus is, was killed or taken out, maybe he would be the next in line. He could have saw. He was taking care of the, the money. But it just concerns me. It says that they say Jesus was a, uh, I better say this right, Judas was a thief. You know, that's the same description earlier that Jesus speaks about the Pharisees, that they were thieves and robbers. Judas had turned away from Jesus being the Messiah who was going to save people from sin into someone that says, this person is taking people away from rituals. But it says many were drawn to Jesus because of what, what Lazarus had, had accomplished, with Lazarus being raised from the dead. But interesting, some people wanted to have him put to death for the same reason. Isn't that interesting? What you see, like if I saw somebody raised from the dead, I would be pretty pumped and excited. I wouldn't think that I'd want that person killed. So we're going to read the, the next part of the scripture. This is John chapter 12, 12 through 19. It's called Jesus' Triumphal Entry. The next day, so watch this. This is just two days, right? One day we have this situation with this, there's this dinner. And the next day it says this. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God! In some versions, it says Hosanna, which means save. Uh, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey colt. His disciples didn't understand. How many times have we read that? His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what, he had, what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there is nothing we can do. Look, everyone's gone after him. You know, when you look at this this portion of scripture. Today, by the way, is, is a, a, a day in church history where we call the, the Palm Sunday. It it's also happens to be the first day of Passover, if you happen to follow that calendar. But the, the, the interesting thing about Palm Sunday, it, the palms were a symbol of nationalism. It was a it was like you, you know, if you choose to wave the American flag, it's, that's what the palms represented. So when the people were raising palms and waving palms at Jesus, they wanted to make him king. They weren't, <laughs> again, they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah that was going to take care of their sin issue, right? But, but we teach kids, oh, wave the palms. I think it's interesting. Waving the palms wasn't honoring to God here, by the way, <laughs> just to let you know. I thought that's interesting. But, but to understand, this is, they're celebrating, they're about ready to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And I know some of you know a lot about the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Passover was, oh boy, it was, it was a demonstration of God's power taking his people away from slavery. Our, our message today really is being removed from slavery being out of debt is being out of debt is being removed from slavery worth investing in a relationship with the one who did it 
I, I want to read. I, I know this is tough. I want you to go into the Old Testament. I know it's really wicked. For If you have the black book, it's page 55. But I'm, I want to go to, to Exodus chapter 12. And, and I'm not going to read it all. So I, I, I have ADHD, which means I don't read, anything, I don't read everything anyway. <laughs> so you'll like this. But I'm going to read some highlighted portions. So if you'll follow, this is the, the instruction. So Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 14-ish. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, this is their land of slavery, the Lord gave them the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. These were the leaders that God said, I will take you out of slavery. From now on, this month will be the first month of your year to you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a goat, a young goat, for sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat the whole animal, let him share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much to eat. Verse 5 says, The animal you select must be one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. So, so far we get this idea that that God is telling the people, listen, now the, the beautiful thing is the Israelites were a sheep and goat community, right? They're shepherds, they're goaters. They, they, so they had a ton of goat, or goats and sheep available. So this wasn't something they couldn't provide. But he says, listen, I, I want to, to start you out fresh and, and on the 10th day of the month, I want you to go pick a young goat, and I want to make sure that there's nothing wrong with them. No, no broken legs. No, you know, no goofy stuff with the skin. I want something that looks good. Right? Without defect. Verse 6. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day. Now that's sort of important to me right now. The rule, the law, the Jewish law, was that the Jewish families were designed to take a sheep on the 10th day and keep it till the 14th. Let's see, three days. Three full days. And then on the 14th of the month, they were to, we're going to read, they're going to slaughter the, the, the lamb. What do you do with a lamb in your house for three days? I don't even know what to do with a lamb. But it, it said, be, and I'm going to read this into it, become intimate with the lamb that's going to take your place. See, you got to read the Old Testament. You got to know what God was talking about and why He did what He did. Take special care of that special of that chosen animal until the evening of the fourteenth day. See, sometimes we we want to avoid the fact that there was there's a lamb that that takes the place of our our condition. But this is saying we need to become intimate with this lamb. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter the lamb or young goat at twilight. Now, this is sort of interesting. Well, I'll read on a little bit. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides of the top of the door frames of the houses where they, where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat of, over the fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. So it's interesting, if you can envision this, some people estimate that there are two million Jewish people inside of Israel, inside of this land of slavery, in this one area, and all at once, probably 100,000, 200,000 lambs get slaughtered like that. Now, there's got to be sound that... that goes throughout the, the country, at least the, the general vicinity, but then all of a sudden they all get roasted at once. Now, I, I think there's a big deal about aroma here. I think it's really important that their obedience was worshipped to Yahweh. And their obedience smelled. And it gave God glory and it gave Him honor. But the Egyptians said, smells like stink to me. It says that to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over your 
doorposts. Now, that, that's never been done before. That's just a weird thing. God had the people do something really strange. Eating food they could deal with. But blood on the lamb, or the blood of the lamb on the doorpost? What a strange thing that God would have them do. In verse 12, he goes on and he explains it. He says, On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. This is just what Pastor Greg said last week. God's problem wasn't with Egypt. He was with the, he, the, his problem was with their gods. There's a spiritual issue here. For I am the Lord. I'm the supreme, he says. But 13, but the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. The blood that you choose to put over your door, what chooses to put between you and God will be a mark so God sees what? What you're dedicated to, what you're worshiping. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when, you strike, when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. It is a law for all time. Do you know, it was probably almost 700 years from that time to Jesus. And for 700 years, every year there was a rehearsal of this. Every year, all of the Jews that were faithful would come to Jerusalem and they would offer, they would, they would either bring a lamb or buy a lamb or goat that was without defect. They would buy it and they would sacrifice it. For almost 700 years, there was a rehearsal of this. And it all led to this point It was estimated at the time of Jesus that they raised 250,000 lambs to provide enough for the people who came to Jerusalem. They expected like 5 million people that just <laughs> flooded into that one area. There had to be a solution. And what the Jews did is outside of Jerusalem in a, in a small city called Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem. Six miles south of Jerusalem, the Levites raised sheep. And there was a tower, I got to say it, it was called Migdal Edar. It means, ready? Tower of the flock. There was a tower where the Levites could go see and take care of these millions of, of sheep. And their job was, inside the tower, there was a point where they would birth the lambs and they would swaddle them. They would take care of the lambs. They would make sure the lambs were birthed correctly and that there weren't defects and they, that they didn't get injured. And then for a full year, they would be outside caring for the lambs. They were, it was a priestly duty. Does that remind you of any story in the Bible? Yes, that story. Those shepherds weren't just shepherd shepherds. They were, they were priestly shepherds. And Jesus didn't get put in some sort of trough where the donkeys were fed. He was put in a place where sheep were, were actually cared for. It was more hygienic than my bathroom. Every year, the priests would herd the sheep into Jerusalem four days before Passover. They would, so can you imagine 250,000 sheep being moved from Bethlehem six miles into Jerusalem? It took all day at least. But they brought all of the sheep into the courtyard of the temple so that people could inspect the sheep, the lambs, and choose one for their sacrifice. At that very moment, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting? 
that admits the 250 lambs, there is one lamb riding on a donkey. People expected a military leader coming on a steed, someone who had an army with him, and Jesus, Jesus said, no, I'm going to come on a donkey. I'm not going to come like you think I'm going to come. But I'm going to relate to the fact that I'm a lamb. I'm going to be walking with the lambs. The question in our life is, there are thousands of lambs out there. What lamb is going to save you today? I want a lamb that meets all my needs. I want a lamb that pays all my bills. I want a lamb that makes me healthier than I am. I want a lamb that lets me lose weight without working. I want lambs that could grow my hair back. I want lambs. I want lambs. I want lambs. Every lamb of that 250,000 was something that had to be done every year. Except one. One lamb said, and, and we see it, John the Baptist from the very beginning, a prophet of God said, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every other lamb just covers it. Every other lamb is just a, a process of remembrance that God can save us. But only one lamb takes away sin. Only one lamb. So if you were in debt, do you want to pay off that debt without paying it off? I mean, do you, do you want to have a credit card that you keep paying interest every year? Or do you recognize that there is one lamb that takes away all debt? Jesus is the only lamb who can take away sin and guilt. Jesus is the only lamb that can fully restore someone to the creator God, the Father. Jesus was sent into the world to reconcile man and God. Paul, a New Testament teacher, pastor, said, he actually said that Jesus, Jesus is our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. So as we enter into Passover, or as we, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, my question to all of us, whether you are faithful in the flock, whether you have that personal relationship with Jesus, or whether you are just looking and asking that question, my question is, is Jesus, is Jesus your Passover lamb? The scripture tells us that we are saved when we when we make that proclamation, but our salvation is progressive, continual. Every day I need to make that declaration. I need that remembrance that the same God that saved me yesterday, I need him today. So we're going to have a time just, for, just to ponder that. I want to invite you that if, if you would love to, if you want to come for prayer or if you just want to sit in your place and, and just consider this, I know the band is going to play a little bit of music, but I, I'd love for you to say, will you choose Jesus as your Passover lamb? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that, that you've provided what we needed before we even knew we needed it. And that you provided the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We're so thankful for that today. I ask, Father, that you administer to the deep needs and wounds and uh, desires of each one here in Jesus' name. Amen.
privilege of being one of the pastors here. A couple of things to share with you guys in the life of our church before we dismiss. Um, first, Pastor Conrad, wave your hand in case somebody doesn't know you. Conrad, where is your class going to be held here in just a moment? In room one, right here in the Pringle building right here, we're about to have a class here in just a few moments for those who are interested in discovering about baptism, what it means, your first step of obedience in following Christ. Um, it's critical not to allow things to be an external symbol of religiosity that isn't something that's actually inside you. And attending that class is a great way to find out, is this the appropriate next step for me? So do that here in just a few moments in room one. Secondly, uh, Friday night at six, we've got a Good Friday service. In case you don't know, um, if you want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday morning with all of the power and all of the emotion of what it really means, you have to experience Easter the same way the disciples did. And it started off with a really awful Friday. It is the terrible Friday that makes Sunday as beautiful and as exciting as it is. And so I want to invite you to come right here in this room, 6 o'clock on Friday night. We're going to celebrate communion together uh, as we look at what Jesus accomplished on Friday. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate what Jesus accomplished on Sunday. Amen. So, um, and then lastly, Sunday, uh, we've, we've been worshiping here at 9, but I wanted a, a chance to do some fun gathering stuff as more and more people are getting their second shot and we're able to get together. Next Sunday, instead of uh, starting to, to sing and sermon at 9, we are going to snack and socialize. So there are going to be tables and chairs and music and bounce houses for the kids, Easter egg hunts for the kids. So still come at 9, but we're going to be partying like it's 1995. And uh, so we're going to have a lot of fun making friends and all that good stuff. You're just laughing because you weren't here in 1995. You were too. Okay, you were here. All right. Um, but we're, we're going to snack and socialize and yummy coffee, bounce houses and all of that, make some friends. And then at 10 o'clock, we'll um, get everybody in here and we'll start singing and sermoning. All right. Um, yes, sir. That's right, 6.30. Are you preaching that? Are you preaching that? Yes. Pastor Dennis just signed up for a 6.30 in the morning sermon by raising his hand. <laughs> yeah, so 6.30, if you want to be part of the sunrise service under the oak tree, that's at 6.30 on Sunday. Okay, last thing, and this is related to Easter. Where, where are my uh, senior citizens and or students of history? What does this mean? Okay, peace is the 1960s answer. Go 20 years further back. When Churchill did it, it was victory. Okay? When you come here next week, we don't just have an annual rhythm of celebrating Jesus' victory over death and what it means. This year, we're starting a series of sermons where we're going to look at all victory that is purchased by Jesus Christ and then handed graciously to his church. Anybody here ever felt defeated? Yeah, it's kind of a normal human experience. Kind of normal. And I believe we are a people in desperate need of victory and the implications of it. And so don't just come next week. Don't just bring a friend next week. Get ready to spend a few weeks celebrating that we are not a defeated people. We're in a world that feels defeated, but that's not who we are any longer. All right? Go back to Neil, if you're a member of this church, and vote Chicago style. Vote early. Vote often. Uh, you're going to say yes to uh, any candidates on there that you believe should be elders. You're going to vote yes to our church budget to approve the annual budget. If you're a guest, you don't have to vote. Isn't that just so much easier for you? You don't have to participate in that. Love you guys. Have a great week.